Welcome everyone, and once again, thank you for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, we continue to work through the book of Genesis, chapters 10 and 11. We can break this sermon down into three main parts. The Table of Nations, the Tower of Babel, and the points and principles that God wants us to learn from these passages. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, The City of Man. Genesis chapter 10, we're going to begin reading in in verse 1 here, Uh, everybody's favorite sections to read, another one of these genealogies, another study, lots of funny sounding names, there is a point to these things, and so we're going to spend some of our time talking about what is the point uh, from chapter 10, and then we'll come in and look at the first section of 11 and see what it is that God is trying to show us here. So let's read the text together. And then I'll pray for us here in just a moment. So beginning in verse 1, Genesis 10, 1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah. And sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, and Magog, and Madai, and Javan, and Tabal, and Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, and Riphath, and Tagorma. The sons of Jaman were Elisha, and Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Seba and Havilah, Sabta and Rama and Sabtika. The sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ur and Kala. And rested between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Mitzrayim became the father of Ludim and Anamim and Lehabim and Naphtuhim. And Pashurim and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvadite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. And afterward, the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go toward Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zebuim, as far as Lacia. These are the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, by their nations. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Ashur and Arpaxad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mash. Arpaxad became the father of Shelah and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad and Sheleph and Hazormaveth and Jera and Hadoram, Uzal and Dikla and Obal and Abimael and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Safar and the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. 
These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Please bow with me and let's pray and ask God's help. Oh, Lord, our God, Father, every time we open up your word, um, there's a battle that's going on. Uh, Father, and if we could see what was happening in the spiritual realm of the battle over whether or not we will listen, whether or not we will heed, respond, bow, obey, trust in you. Lord, that this literally determines our eternity. God, we would lean in much more intently. Father, I I ask for your grace now. Father, everything that needs to happen right now for us to benefit from your truth, your word, which you tell us is supernaturally powerful to bring transformation to us to awaken the lost to see their need and for your children to be brought further in our growth. Everything we need, God, you provide for us in your word. I ask God all the grace we need to pay attention, lean in, Father, and then to be transformed. God, we pray that you give it. Father, we need your help. We need you to give us of your Holy Spirit. Father, even physically, I pray God will have the ability to not be bored, not be distracted by all kinds of different thoughts about what we're going to do and later on and what's going on in our lives. But God, give us the grace to focus and give the full of our attention to your truth. And then, God, we pray that in an understanding the truth, you will bring us where you want us to be. Please give us help. God, if I'm going to be useful, I need your help. So please, Lord, come to me. Give me everything I need right now, oh God to preach and not say wrong things, set a guard over my lips and not say anything false or unhelpful, vulgar or anything, oh God, that is unhelpful. God, only what is true, only what is right, only what is good. And please bless this time, oh God, for the glory of your name. We love you, our Father. We ask all these things through Christ, our Savior. Amen. Uh, Augustine uh, wrote a work uh, about 1,600 years ago that we're still talking about today. And it's a book where he takes a a metaphor from the Bible and he sort of fleshes it out further to to give us this this picture, this illustration. Um, The book that he wrote is called The City of God. And, And in that, he pictures all of humanity 
divided into two cities, the city of man and the city of God. Each city has its own culture, its own laws, its own way of behaving and speaking, its own way of viewing all things. And and then most significantly, each city has its own ruler. In the city of man, everything is contrary and opposed to the ways and the culture of the city of God. And those in the city of man are invited, are, are, are welcomed, beckoned to come and join the city of God, become a citizen of that heavenly city by bowing to the rule and the authority of Jesus Christ. Well, when Augustine was writing that work, one of the places in the Bible that he drew, drew this metaphor from is right here in this passage that we've just read. The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is, is sort of given to us as the, as the prototypical picture of what the city of man would be. Defined by humanism. Everything about the city of man, everything about its culture, its beliefs. It's all about elevating human wisdom. Elevating human glory. Human authority is seen as the, the highest of authority and the authority of God is forgotten. The glory of God is ignored. In the city of man, whatever exalts human pride, that's its goal, that's its belief, but the city of man is shown to us again and again in Scripture is a city of destruction. Oh, It'll, it'll flourish for a season. There'll be all kinds of celebration, all kinds of earthly glory, but in the end, its glory will be forgotten. And in contrast to that, we're shown all these times in the Bible, this this metaphor of the city of God. There's a beautiful verse in the Psalms that is kind of left mysterious and then picked up again in the book of Revelation. There's a verse in the Psalms that says, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. What does that mean? And then it just sort of moves on. We come back in the book of Revelation to to, to see this, this imagery here that God has prepared a city for his people and those who turn to God through Jesus Christ, who trust in Christ, turning away from rebellion to God and turning to Christ as the Lord of heaven and earth, trusting in him to be saved from our sins, saved into the eternal life we've been given. You become a citizen of that city now, even though we're not presently in the city. And the earth really is divided between the citizens, the city of man and the city of God. Genesis 10 through 11 brings this metaphor out, but really showing it to us in history. Genesis 10 and 11 is given to us. One of the points is simply to show us why the world is the way that it is. If you're a visitor with us this morning, uh, we here at this church, we believe the book of Genesis to be literal truth, not just parable, not just story that's supposed to teach some things. This is literally what God has done in history and God has brought things about in such a way to show things. One of the reasons why God has given us Genesis 1 through 11 is to show us why the world is the way that it is. Like as we, as we look at this world and we try to understand it, we've, we've, we've asked this several question several times. Why is the world the way that it is with all its glory, misery, and weirdness in between? 
Well, the world is the way that it is because of creation by a glorious God. But it's also the way that it is because of the fall into depravity and sin. But it's also the way that it is because there was a global flood. And the world is also the way that it is because of Genesis 10, the nations that God brought about after the flood and then the dispersing of those nations to the ends of the earth. Genesis 10 and 11 show us the migration of peoples and nations across the earth, where those nations came from, how it came about that they were divided. Uh, you know, some of the very fascinating things, if you enjoy this kind of thing to go read up on further, it's pretty it's pretty fantastic that secular sociologists and archaeologists are still using the same names, the same places, the same facts confirmed in Genesis 10 and 11 when they describe the migrations and such of ancient peoples, even when it drives them nuts that they have to do so. Let's, let's, let's approach this, this text this way this morning. Let's divide it into three parts. Uh, just very simply, we'll, we'll just kind of look at this in a, in a couple of sections here. Uh, first one, chapter 10, we're going to call this the table of nations. Uh, that's the sort of the subheading that some of your Bibles may have there. Uh, point number two, we'll go to chapter 11 and look at the Tower of Babel. And then lastly, we want to ask the question, all right, what, what does God want us to get out of this? It's here, it's history what are we supposed to see? What truths and principles are there? So that's how we'll approach things. So here's number one, the table of nations. We've made the point that the earth's population has come from Noah and his three sons. Chapter 10 gives us this, this genealogy, early genealogy of the sons divided into 70 nations. So if you count them up there, that's, that's the number. And, and you notice this emphasis on the word nations that kept coming up through Genesis 10. Um, I think that's significant for the way that the rest of the Bible will speak of the world and, and the nations. And, and just to go ahead and, and jump into the heart of the New Testament and the way that the, the Old Testament is always pointing to the glory of what, here, what is here in the New Covenant, the glory of the New Testament, in this era of the New Covenant, when Jesus preached and said that the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, the message of the gospel is the message of Christ's salvation, that God has made a way for all of us who have sinned against him, rebelled against him, to be brought near and at peace with him again. God has made a way for us who have rebelled against him to be brought as citizens once again into the kingdom. All of us who have made ourselves unclean by our sin, and if that offends you, kind of got to deal with it. That's what the Bible says. We've made ourselves unclean before a holy God. We do not deserve eternal life. We deserve to be cast away from God forever and ever. But God in his mercy has made a way to draw a people near to himself, but through his son. Jesus Christ came to the earth, died for sins, rose from the grave, and now is welcoming all who will come and trust in him as savior to be brought to peace with God again. That's the message of the gospel. Jesus said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. When we hear that, we need to think Genesis 10. We need to, we need to think some of these terms. When revelation comes to us, and we get this, this beautiful picture that on, on, the, on the last day, gathered around the throne of God, 
There is a multitude that John says could not be counted. And there are those there from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation who have responded to Jesus Christ, who have believed on him and are gathered around the throne. When we, when we hear that language of nations, we need to think Genesis 10. Not in the sense that that's necessarily the exact way that God defines the people groups and such, but from the perspective of this, friends, God is showing us here the linking of all of humanity together in this place, coming off of the ark, gathered, linked together in Noah, and then the dispersal of the nations, and we see God's concern for all of the nations. Listen to me, friends. God is not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of the United States. He's the God of the nations. He's the God of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. And God is on a mission that he is bringing souls to himself from every language, every ethnicity, every nationality to come and bow to Jesus Christ to be there. All of this is kind of rooted here beginning in Genesis 10. These people groups, by, by the way, I'm tempted to spend more time on what I'm about to say here than, than what I really should here. Uh, mentioned in past sermons, the people groups that are mentioned here. There was a time when skeptics mocked Christians for believing the Bible. And one of the points that they used here was what they said that, uh, you know, you, you Christians believe this is true history. This is ridiculous. These people groups didn't even exist. And they claimed, you know, we know this because we've never found anything about them. That's kind of arrogant, by the way. <laughs> World kind of has this perspective sometimes that uh, if I don't know about it, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's kind of prideful, okay? Um, but lo and behold, over the course of time, we, we've been talking about this a little bit, archeology. span One of the things that's cool now is, not only have we found um, evidence of these people groups and such that exist here, you can actually like take courses at universities on the cultures of ancient Near Eastern history and peoples and such. Uh, and, and so we know much about their beliefs, their gods, their art, their pottery, their songs, their wars, their rulers, etc., etc. So much of this has been uncovered. And there's, there's a lot more I'd, I'd like to say just because I find it fascinating. Things like you can look at the world and, and history and see ways that I think it's only explainable by the history that the Bible gives. So, so things like the existence of uh, ziggurats, uh, which are sort of like a pyramid, some of your study Bibles may have a picture of a ziggurat in Genesis chapter 11. Uh, and the reason why it's given is because in this region that the Bible is talking about, this region of Babylon, there have been ancient ziggurats that have been uncovered and found, um, including a massive one in the city of Ur, which is where we will meet Abram starting next week and things. And, and so you, you look at some of those things across continents. You look at some of the beliefs and things that exist even in uh, South American ancient culture that are linked back and similar to what uh, the Bible says in Genesis 1. And you think, oh, how, how could those connections be made? I find all that stuff fascinating. You can read more about that on your own. But one of the things that is cool to see is authentication of, of what the Bible says the Bible is showing here the place where the migration of the nations began at the Tower of Babel. Well, I want, I want to point out a couple of things before we leave uh, chapter 10 here. So a couple of important things to notice. Uh, 
when you're looking at the chapter there, you see it's divided into kind of three sections. The three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verses uh, two to five there, you got just a brief little section on Japheth. Verses six to 20, there's a major section there on the descendants of Ham, and there's a reason for that. If you remember last week, one of the things we saw is um, a curse was uttered onto Ham and his descendants for rebellion and such that's there. Really, you're going to see some of that played out. Then you notice verses 21 to 31, the descendants of Shem are followed there. But, But think for a second here on the descendants of Ham. Canaan, being one of the sons of Ham, they went on to comprise a great number of Israel's future enemies. But I want you to notice as you go through that section of verses 6 through 20, Ham's descendants seem to do all right. I mean, if you look at it, there's prosperity. There's wealth. Make themselves a pretty nice living on the earth for hundreds of years. Look at a bit of it in verse 8. You meet this funny-sounding guy named Nimrod. Mighty hunter before the Lord, powerful man who went on to found these various cities. One of the cities you notice there? Uh, Babel, later, that would grow into a massive, full kingdom called Babylon. But by the way, friends, the book of Genesis was written approximately 1,100 years before Babylon would come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. That's pretty astounding. Like, like I, I know, like we believe uh, the, the supernatural power of God's word. We believe the prophecies and things of scripture still don't lose that sense of wonder in the fact that God says things in history thousands of years later. It's coming about. This is pretty amazing. You keep going. Later in verse 11, the same family line produces certain cities that would eventually grow into the kingdom of Assyria. If you remember your Old Testament history, Assyria would later conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And so that means the book of Genesis was written approximately 900 years before that event occurred. One of the major cities of Assyria that's mentioned here is Nineveh. If you remember the book of Jonah, Nineveh was the place that God called Jonah to go and preach the message of warning and repentance. In verse 13, you have the same family line producing a kingdom that is still with us. Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim is the Hebrew word for Egypt. Some of your Bibles may even translate this word as Egypt there. And throughout the Bible, and just to, just to track this for just a little bit here, a number of interesting prophecies were given by God about Egypt. You know, in our scripture reading time, we've been reading through some of the prophets. And we've had some of those sections of chapters that were uh, woes on certain nations, judgments that God said there's been excessive rebellion. He said, I'm going to bring judgment against you. Some of those nations that God spoke those judgments again, he would kind of word it like this. I'm judging you and you will be no more. Like I'm eliminating you off of the earth. And every time God said that, that has happened. Like you can't go visit the nation of the Hittites today. But concerning Egypt, a number of times God would give a prophecy about that nation and he would say, I'm bringing judgment on you, but, but to paraphrase, but I have a future for you. And it is kind of interesting. You can still go visit the nation of Egypt today. Kingdoms of the earth come and go. 
glories of kingdoms rise and fall. Egypt is still around. In fact, to go even further, I think there's something even cooler to see. There were certain prophecies that God made about Egypt where he said, he gave implication to the fact that Egypt would bow to the Lord. Now that's kind of an uncanny prophecy considering what we know about the history and Exodus and such and where they came from. For God to say, one day Egyptians will, will run to the Lord. But here's one of the things that came about in church history. After the resurrection of Christ and the church began to do what happened in Genesis 10 and 11, by the way, be dispersed throughout the nations. There's a picture you need to see there, okay? Be dispersed throughout the nations. The gospel made its way to Egypt. There actually came a point in history where Christianity was the predominant religion in the nation of Egypt. There are still Christians there in Egypt. You'll sometimes hear about a Coptic Christians being beheaded and such there. Okay, prophecies God made thousands of years ahead of time still being unfolded by the scripture, linking us all the way back to Genesis 9. And one of the things that I think is cool when we see that is we saw God say a, a cursing on this family line because of rebellion and such again him, but still yet we see God's mercy extend. Still yet we see God going to people who are enemies and bringing them to himself. Our God is the God of the nations. And, and to bring this back uh, where we got off just a second ago, uh, Ham was cursed. God told there would be judgment and things there. And yet many of his descendants went on to prosper on the earth. Listen to me, friends, earthly prosperity, wealth is not an indicator of God's blessing. The people of God often live in poverty, but they have the city of God. One more thing I want to show, just, just trying to help you make some connections in the rest of the Bible with some of what goes on here in Genesis 10. Let me, let me show you one more connection. Um, flip over to Genesis 15 for a second. Genesis 15, uh, one of the groups that's mentioned in Genesis 10 uh, as a descendant of Ham was a group called the Amorites. Look and see something here. Uh, starting verse 13, Genesis 15, 13, this fast forwards a little bit to when we, whenever we meet Abram, but look what's said here. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. You know what that's talking about? talking about the, the, the era of slavery uh, that we'll, we'll, we'll encounter in the book of Exodus, verse 14. But I will also judge the nation on whom they serve, that's Egypt, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Do you see what God is saying there? When God said this to Abram, Abram was in the land of Canaan. Now that's today the land we call the land of Israel. At that time, it was called the land of Canaan because it was inhabited by the Canaanites. One of the groups there in the land of Canaan was this group called the Amorites. God said, I'm going to give to your descendants this land, but I'm not going to do it yet because the Amorites are not yet so wicked that I'm going to judge them. But the day would come when they did rebel against God. 400 years into the future, they did rebel against God to a degree that God said, I'm going to judge them. 
And Israel, I'm using you to do this. Even that itself is the fulfillment of the prophecy that we find there at the end of chapter 9. Last thing I want to call your attention to there in chapter 10 is that we follow the line of Shem starting in verse 21, and that will be significant. So back in chapter 10, starting in verse 21 there, that'll be significant. God has promised redemption to the world. He's promised to crush the head of the serpent, fix what we have broken in this world. And God began to show how he's going to bring that about. We saw that of the sons of Adam and Eve, God chose one of those sons to carry on a promise through, Seth. Seth then led to Noah. Of Noah's three sons, Shem, it's going to be taken and God is going to carry promises through Shem. And for the rest of the Bible, the rest of the Old Testament, especially as you follow the story of God's work in and then through the Israelites, you're following the, this family line of this lineage through Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then on to the 12 tribes of Israel. So this, this is helping you see how we got to where we are. God is showing you the history of how these things set up. All right, now let's move to chapter 11 here. So we're shown this. Some of that is just very practical, historical things there from chapter 10. Uh, chapter 11. We begin by being told something that makes sense. The entire earth spoke the same language. Mankind had this unity of language. And so what did they do with this unity? Well, a group of them, not told exactly how many, but it seems a massive group of them gathered together to build a tower. Now, of course, there's, there's nothing evil about building a tower or progress, okay? So like the point of this passage is not like the evil of cities or something like this, okay? So the point is not this, but the point was what was in the heart of man and why they did it. You have a couple things going on here. One is that God had given the instruction to fill the earth. They said, no, we're going to do our own thing here. But even much bigger deal than that, much bigger deal of what's going on. At the Tower of Babel, mankind united in an act of rebellion against God and sought to elevate himself to a position in the heavens. Nothing wrong with building a big building. You build a big tower, big building for the purpose of caring for the sick, that's wonderful. You build a big building for the purpose of aborting babies, that's a different story. It's what's in the heart of man and why this was being brought about. Mankind unites and they unite for the purpose of honoring and elevating themselves in rebellion to God, lifting themselves to a position of deities. Friends, this is why the Tower of Babel is so commonly referred to as the place where humanism began. This is what secular humanism is, is all about. It's always about elevating human thinking, human wisdom to a place that is either equal to, or let's be honest, above God's authority. This is, this is the issue of why what we often refer to as liberal Christianity is repulsive to God. What I mean by liberal Christianity, I'm not talking politically liberal, I'm talking liberal theology. Liberal Christianity is that, is that form of, of religion, that form of Christianity that sure, we'll talk about Jesus, but we're just going to do with the Bible whatever we want. 
We're just going to read the Bible however we want to read it. Whatever the culture's talking about, that's what we'll talk about. Uh, cult cultures uh, talking about bullying, we're going to talk about bullying. Cult cultures real hot right now, same-sex marriage, that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to condone everything. You just go do whatever you want. We'll find a way to make, make it sound spiritual. Well, the reason why that is so repulsive to God, this do whatever you want kind of thing, is it is taking what God has spoken and lowering it and elevating human thinking above God. Let me give you an example really good friend of mine in college struggled with same-sex attraction. And we would have these conversations, these conversations about what following Christ looked like to him. And he told me in some of our conversations, he said it was a real temptation for him to just go join one of these churches that pandered, that, that twisted what the Bible said, and they just, they just took passages out of context and just, just told him, this, this is how God made you. God loves you and just wants you to be happy. All of those passages that, that talk about that, well, that was cultural and put some spin on everything that makes it all sound okay. And I'm, like, I'm, I'm sad to tell you that he, he did eventually cave to the temptation but really, that's the same kind of temptation. Every one of us have our own kind of temptation where we are going to want to approach the Bible in a certain way and we're going to want to twist what the Bible says to make it match conveniently with what I want to believe, with the sin that my flesh wants, whatever that is for you and I. He eventually caved in. He joined one of these hip, modern churches that pandered, that told him everything his flesh wanted to hear, and told him, you can follow Christ and give in to these kinds of things right here. Listen to me. Let me tell you what that is doing. That is taking human thinking, human wisdom, and bringing it above the authority of God. That is raising humanity to a height of deity. It is lowering God and elevating man. Friends, the big issue of the Tower of Babel is man elevating himself and refusing to acknowledge the authority of God, refusing to worship, refusing to, to honor, refusing to bow to him as the king. It's refusing to worship. It's refusing to give God the glory that he is due. A couple Wednesday nights ago, we saw the occasion in the book of Acts when Herod Agrippa was praised as a god. And he refused to give glory to God. And, and we saw that he was struck by an angel and died. And we walked through several times in the Bible when humans robbed God of glory. And what the Bible says about that. The Bible even says the things like when we fail to give thanks to God for kindness, we're robbing him of glory because it's a moment we're supposed to be acknowledging him. We saw Moses in the Old Testament. God told Moses one time when the people needed water, um, speak to the rock and I will give them water. Moses walks up to the rock, yells at the people, you want me to give you water? Beats the rock. And God says, you did not treat me as holy in the sight of the people. There was a moment Moses was supposed to give glory to God and he took it for himself. It's a big deal to rob God of glory. Friends, we owe God glory. The Psalms instruct us, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. That means a couple things. 
Number one, there's a glory, there's a worship that you owe to God. In the same way that husbands owe their wives love, wives owe their husbands respect, that there are things that we owe one another, we owe worship and glory to God. That's part of how we've been created in this, in this relationship with God. We owe him these things. And then secondly, it is not enough for us to just merely nod our heads at a statement like that, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. No, no. With your own lips, you yourself need to verbalize and give glory to God. That's why we worship. That's what worship is. Worship is feeling the worth of God in our hearts and then declaring that, expressing it like when we sing songs like we do. We are saying to God that he is glorious. Well, at the Tower of Babel, mankind united in defiance against God, refusing to honor, refusing to acknowledge the greatness and the glory of God, and they tried to take it to themselves. Here is always the pattern, lower God, elevate man. When you think about it in those terms, friend, the Tower of Babel gets repeated continuously. Lower God, elevate man. Mankind still continues to unite to do this exact thing. Every rally, every movement, every organization founded upon principles which takes God's law, God's words, and disregards them and tries to dethrone God and place man on the seat of authority. That is repeating the Tower of Babel over and over again. The Bible brings us to the right perspective. The Bible is where we see where we fit in relation to God. The more time you spend in the Bible, by the way, this is not like a one-time thing, like read one passage and all of a sudden you're like, you got it perfect. No, this is a lifetime kind of thing. The more time you spend in the word of God, the more you see rightly where we fit with God and God just keeps getting higher and higher and higher in your understanding of who he is. Well, the people begin to build this tower. We don't know how far they got into the process, but if you watch the language in verse 4, they say this statement, let's build a tower to the heavens. What happens in verse 5? God comes down from heaven to see it. You see some of the significance? That's, that's kind of a poetic way of God saying. They're trying to build themselves a tower that elevates them to the position of deity. God has to descend to even go see it. It's just a poetic way of speaking of this. A couple places in the Bible, we're told that God looks down on the works of men and laughs. The Lord laughs in derision at the thoughts of man that they can rival God. And at the end of the account there, God decides to confuse the language. That's why it was called Babel, kind of like we talk about a baby babbling in, under, in, in unintelligible speech there. God brings a confusion of language for the purpose that the people will no longer be united in this opposition, but then will spread out on the earth. God says it is for the purpose of thwarting the collective efforts of man together. If humanity were able to have complete unity, language, whatever else, it wouldn't go down the way that humanists speak of. Humanists generally kind of speak of humans united together that, oh, the beautiful things we would accomplish, the Bible shows something different, and so does history. 
Mankind united in complete unity and opportunity will give their lives to inventing new ways to oppose God for their own good and as an act of judgment. Like I do think both of those are there. For the people's own good and in an act of God's work, God divides the nations. And we see the scattering, the initial scattering that then came and then continued throughout history. Well, let's, let's come to the last part here and let's ask this question. What are we supposed to see? So God says some things, but what are points, principles we're supposed to draw out of this? Let me, let me, let me give seven if you're taking notes. Seven points and principles that are here. Here's number one. Uh, first, just very simply, practically, it may not even seem like that spiritual of a point, but it is. God is just helping us understand the world and where we came from. So even from this perspective, you know, it, it's been said You do not know who you are unless you know where you've come from. If you don't know history, then you do not know human nature and you do not rightly understand this world. There's a common modern statement that we say, you know, we always repeat it. Those who don't know history are bound to repeat it. I think that's true. I think the Bible goes further. I think the Bible would show knowing history is deeper than that. Knowing history brings you to understand this world in general, who we are, why we do what we do, how we function, human nature. So why is the world the way that it is? Because of these events that God has shown us. Creation by a glorious God, a fall from glory into depravity, a promise of redemption, a flood of judgment, Nations dispersed throughout the earth. God is helping you see this world and understand where we came from. And then just a very practical question that sometimes we ask about the Bible. Uh, Love teaching with children. And then they ask this question, Pastor Josh, where did all the different kinds of people in the world come from? The different features, the different skin colors and things. Well, actually, we have a moment here. um, Doesn't happen very often. We have a moment here where modern scientists and Christians agree uh, that he's essentially... When you isolate a people, their particular genetic tendencies will become pronounced over the course of generations of propagation. So here's what I mean by that. If you took a group of 20 people, put them on an island, and then they lived for centuries there. They married, they had children, they carried on life, but they were limited to a certain number of people. The dominant genetic traits would begin to become pronounced. So there's that. But can you see this from the heavenly perspective? Can can you see some of the beauty of God in this? Some of the wisdom? Friends, the diversity of humanity is one of the ways that God shows his glory. It's, It's one of the ways whenever you observe different cultures and you see beauty that comes out of there, like you're seeing things about your creator. Um, there's a verse in Revelation, Revelation 21, 26, and it's talking about, okay, into the Bible, it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And, and listen to what it said here. It says, they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into this new heavens and a new earth. Part of what God says is that the redeemed parts of cultures are going to be brought into the kingdom of heaven and that will be some of the beauty that is there. Like there's a lot of parts of our culture that need to die. We got some beautiful parts. 
And whenever you, you, you look around the world and you see these different, these different parts of cultures and things, the redeemed parts of these cultures, the beautiful things that are there that are evidence of a glorious God who made them coming out, they're going to be brought into the kingdom of heaven. And part of the beauty of that place will be to see the beauty of cultures and the glory of nations that are brought into that kingdom of heaven. That's a cool thought. That we can look around and we can see the glory of God evidenced in the diversity that God has made in this world. Secondly, kind of a similar point in some sense, the Bible is showing us here a truth that really shouldn't have been that big of a deal, but we do find in history it has become, we come from the same common ancestors. We are linked in Noah as one people. See, friends, the ideas that have come about throughout history that different groups of people are intrinsically, physically different is an idea that is foreign to the Bible. And that has come about from secularists. Sadly, we'll also say some pockets of Christianity and then some pockets of, quote, Christianity. Some of these kinds of different ideas found in secular naturalists. You remember we talked about whenever we were looking at the image of God, us being made in the image of God, we talked about Odabinga, the, the man who was kept in the St. Louis Zoo amongst the uh, apes as a, a demonstration of evolution, this kind of idea that there are different groups of people who are intrinsically different, uh, like the idea of like different animals evolving in different directions. That idea has come about in history. Sadly, it stuck. One of the reasons it stuck was because of slavery. See, secularists a couple centuries ago, and then Christians, certain pockets of Christians, not everybody, but certain pockets of Christian thought had different ways that they tried to justify slavery or why it was okay to just hate certain groups of people. So you had this secular naturalism which developed these kinds of ideas of different groups of people who are intrinsically different. That's why it's okay to treat them poorly. They're not really as developed, evolved of humans as others. And then, then you had ridiculousness come about even from distorting the Bible. You had ridiculousness come out of, well, here's one from last week in Genesis 9. When we saw God curse Ham, there was actually a group within Christianity that said that when God cursed Ham, cursed Canaan, what he really did was turn him from white into another culture because Adam and Eve were white. That's a joke. That's sarcasm. This idea that then they could hold on to racism, could then hold on to slavery as that's okay because God cursed him. And actually, I'm just going in line with what God said. That kind of crap of dishonestly treating the Bible has popped up over and over again throughout the centuries and it is disgusting to God. And let me tell you right now, a lot of that junk would have been fixed by just honest biblical preaching, both the secularist view and the, the quote Christian views that came out in some of these things. God is showing us truth about history, where we have come from and who we are. God corrects the right perspectives in this world. Number three, mankind stands in opposition to God at every turn of history. Number four, 
The greatest towers of men are laughable by God. Number five, every lofty tower will crumble. Mansions are a colossal waste of time and resources. Anything built merely for earthly glory, that glory will be forgotten. And then here are the last two, and we'll spend just a a touch more time with these. These are extremely significant. Here's number six. The day of Pentecost. All right, so think about the day of Pentecost. Remember the day of Pentecost? Jesus has resurrected from the dead and Jesus has given the commission to go out and make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. But wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit coming. Day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon the people of God. They go out in the streets and they begin to then preach to the nations and nations are then brought to Jesus Christ. The day of Pentecost was the beginning of God's work to reunite the nations, but this time under the rule of Christ. What God did in the Tower of Babel, God is redeeming in the gospel. God is redeeming in the kingdom of God. God brought about a dispersal of the nations, but the work of this new covenant of where we are right now is the work of God now bringing the nations to himself under the rule of Christ, under the lordship of King Jesus. If you want to jot down a passage to look at this afternoon, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, we have this description here that in the gospel, what has happened is Jew and Gentile, these different groups of people, the barrier walls have now been broken down and God is making the groups into one. One people of God, one flock under one shepherd. God is taking the nations and drawing them into himself self through the blood of Christ. Friends, our calling as the people of God, if you claim the name of Christ, our calling is to go to the nations with the message of salvation to draw the souls into the kingdom of God. We are united together in Christ. And then lastly, number seven, you are a citizen of some city. You are either a citizen of the city of man or of the city of God. The Tower of Babel is either your home or how the the New Testament will speak of this. If you want to jot down some passages, Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. Hebrews 13, uh, 13 to 14. What you have described here is this. You've got some of this explanation of the uh, believers in the Hall of Faith, chapter 11 there. And we see ways that they obeyed God even though they didn't get earthly reward for it. And here's what we're told. When people act that way, they're showing they're waiting for a better country, a better city, a heavenly city. You are a citizen of some city, the city of man or the city of God. There is a way to come into the city of God that you may not behave however you want. You may not speak however you want. There is a particular culture and a particular law of the city of God. You don't get entrance into that city by being good. Like go and fix how you talk, go and fix how you live, go and fix how you behave. That's not how you enter. You enter by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the savior and the Lord King of that city. But whenever you enter, you enter with the understanding, I am coming here to follow and submit 
to the rule of this king. You enter by faith in Jesus Christ, but you will live obedience by following after his ways. The city of man is a city of destruction. That's not a joke. That's not a gimmick. Everyone who has refused to honor Jesus Christ will see an eternal hell. God is not playing around about that. But God is welcoming you, beckoning you to come and be made right with him by turning to Jesus Christ to be saved from your sins, both the judgment of those sins and also to then go on and live a life that leaves those sins. You need Christ. If anybody has questions about that, about that right there, how you can be saved, how you can know that you have eternal life, I'll be at the back at the end of the service. Just come ask me a question. I'll show you more, tell you more, try to answer your questions. But what you need is Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll dismiss. Father in heaven, we ask your grace. Please, O oh Lord, give us understanding. Please, O oh Lord, continue to show us your truths. Please, God, as a church family, make us holy. Grow us in the knowledge of the truth and then grow us in obedience. And I pray, God, as we're about to leave here, Lord, that we, your people, will go and live obedience to you. Purify us. Make us holy. Cause us to be a people who demonstrate and show your character and your glory. Father, and I pray for anyone in the room that has not yet turned to Christ. God, I pray, convince them, draw them, open eyes, show them their need of you, and then I pray they will want you. We love you, Lord. We pray these things through the name of Christ. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, The City of Man. Tune in again next week as we continue to work through the book of Genesis. True Vine Baptist Church also invites you to like our Facebook page or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.